people find each other and, you know, build each other up and edify each other. And because of that, they create things that change the world. Welcome to Tales with the Sales, where we discuss stories that matter because you are living one. I'm your host, Jane DeSales. I'm a writer, poet, and storyteller. It is my pleasure to introduce you to authors as we explore how fiction impacts our lives and culture. My guest today is Rosanna M. White. This best-selling author won a Christie Award for her historical romance, A Portrait of Loyalty. She has long claimed that words are the air she breathes. When not writing fiction, she's homeschooling her two kids, editing, designing book covers, and pretending her house will clean itself. Spies, war, and mayhem always seem to find their way into her books to offset her real life, which is blessedly ordinary. You can learn more about her and her stories at www. Dot rosannamwhite.com. Her latest book is Shadowed Loyalty, available from Chrism Press. My guest today is Rosanna White. And Rosanna, why don't you read some great literature for us? I'd love to. This is from Wings Like a Dove by Camille Eide. And um, we're picking up in the middle of a scene, obviously, and it's right after there's been a parade in the 1930s with the, the clan present in the parade. But the clan is still the clan, is it not? Sarah glanced at her with a shrug. I reckon so. Why do they march now? Anna asked. The baby kicked hard. How should I know? I'm not a clan member. She got up abruptly and went into the house. With a sigh, Anna hoisted herself up from the ground, which took some extra effort, and gathered the boys. Violet balked, as Samuel was in the middle of showing her how to whittle a canoe. Sarah came back outside with a plate of cookies. You ain't leaving, are you? She offered cookies to the children. I am afraid I've worn out my welcome, Anna said lightly. It's just the heat getting to us, that's all, Sarah said. I'm sorry I snapped at you, Anna. That was rude of me. Anna sighed. I cannot ask you to answer for other people. It is I who owe you the apology. Sarah smiled, then reached an arm around Anna and gave her a hug. I just wish folks could learn how to get along. Anna looked into Sarah's eyes. Perhaps they can, if people's blindness toward others was from compassion instead of ignorance. Sarah frowned. What do you mean? I think people dislike those they do not know because they cannot see the good in others. What if we choose instead to be blind to people's flaws and shortcomings and the differences we do not understand? Sarah studied Anna as she pondered this. Like closing our eyes to the things we don't like about folks? Yes, and opening our hearts to make room for those who are different, showing mercy to those we do not understand, having compassion for people who seem strange to us. That might do the trick, Sarah said slowly if everybody would do it. Well, that just pulls you up short, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. <laughs> wow. Where did you find this piece of literature? We actually published it with one of our um, publishing imprints, Whitefire. Camille Eide is actually from Oregon, so she's out on your coast. And uh, she writes these very poignant books. And when she sent us this one, my husband read it as, as an editor, and he's like, you have to read this. I can't find anything wrong with it. <laughs> I was supposed to send her feedback. So I read it, and it was just one of those, like, it hits you in the heart again and again and again. And I found myself wanting to quote passages constantly for months after reading it. So I was like, okay, when you, when you asked me to bring something, it was like, I have to bring something from Wings Like a Dove because it's always relevant and it was one of those stories that really helped me to realize that no matter where we are in history, this is always going to be a problem. We're always looking at people ready to judge them. It's just part of our not so great human condition, right? But this was the first time that somebody put into words that we are going to have blindnesses, but if we could have them in the right way, it could be a help instead of a harm. If we choose to not focus on the things we don't like or don't understand, and instead view them with compassion, it 
it changes everything. So it was just, yeah, this book was amazing. It especially struck me because when I was in the military, I lived in the South several times and I was stationed in Atlanta for a while. And I lived in a community where my household was the only community members who were not of color. I'm from the Northwest, where unfortunately we have our share of bigotry up here as well, but it is different and it's not as intense as it is down in the South and it doesn't have as long of a history. And so it was a real wake up call to me in conversations with my coworkers and um, my neighbors about how entrenched issues of racism and judgment and not seeing the human person and their dignity can be. And so like my Northwestern ears hear, you know, the Klan in a parade and you're like, oh my goodness. But the part of me that lived in the South was like, absolutely, they would have been there. Yeah. And the funny thing is, so this book takes place in Indiana. So it's not even the oh, wow. South. In the 1930s, the Klan had had this huge resurgence, um, actually starting in the 20s. And it was everywhere. It was in the South. It was in the North. They boasted a membership of ridiculous numbers. I think it was it was either near a million or in the millions all over the country. And it was like a social thing at the time. But it was, as she says, but it's still the Klan. It's still rooted in these, you know, horrible ideals. I hadn't even thought about it too much before I read this, but then I came across it in other research too. And it was just staggering that this is this is part of our country's history and it's a big part and it's not as ancient as we'd like to think it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is this is what I love about fiction is it can pique your interest and it can give you that, you know, seeing it through somebody's eyes. It's not just flat facts on a page. And clearly it really impacted you. Oh, yeah. Very much. Wow. I'm just I'm chewing on that for a minute while I drink my coffee. <laughs> I've chewed on it for years, so I understand. I mean, where do you where do you take that, right? <laughs> I didn't start us off easy, did I? <laughs> no, you're fine. Don't even worry about it. So you mentioned that this is one of your imprints of Whitefire Publishing. Yeah. So here's the surprise for our listeners that not only is Rosanna White the author of the book Shadowed Loyalty that I just read, she's also a publisher. So before we jump into your book, why don't you tell us a little bit about publishing since it touches on this um, inspirational piece of literature that you shared with us? Sure. So um, I have always been a writer. I was one of those writing forever. Um, my husband has always been more interested in the technical side, the, the physical printing of books. He worked in the print shop in college and the idea of publishing. And he's very much um, a helper. His he, his calling is helping other people realize their callings. So he wanted to help authors get their books out there. So we founded Whitefire Publishing uh, right after college and started with my books. And it was a slow start because, you know, we had kids and all that fun stuff. Um, but then we started really putting the nose to the grindstone in about 2010 or 11 with it. And um, we've grown over the last 12 years or so to have... 75 authors and upwards of 200 titles at this point. Um, we have several different imprints. So, you know, what started is just we want to help good stories get out there has, has uh, blossomed quite a lot. So we now have our main imprint that publishes everything Christian fiction. Uh, we have Ashbury Lane. That's our dedicated romance line. We have White Spark for the young readers up through young adult. Uh, we, of course, have Chrism Press, which is our Catholic and Orthodox imprint. And our most recent one, which we'll be launching later this year, is called White Crown, and it is royal fiction. What niche do you feel like White Fire and all of its imprints is filling that wasn't being met elsewhere? hard stories. Um, that's really where we started with stories that were fabulous, very well written. The, you know, the quality was there, but there was something in them that the big presses were afraid of that, you know, it was too niche, a, a, an audience or the setting was weird, or there was just something too gritty in it. Uh, so we're, we don't like stories that are, you know, dark for the sake of being dark, but we do love stories 
that show how bright the light of Christ is in the darkness. Uh, so hence mafia stories <laughs> or, um, you know, we've had some strange settings. We have some things that are about people with mental illness or struggling with addiction or, you know, very real gritty can, can go both ways these days, but things that just, you know, aren't afraid to tackle the things we actually face in life because we have a savior capable of handling those things. And why do those stories you think matter particularly right now? Oh, those stories always matter because fiction fiction can change the world. Um, stories change the world is one of our mottos across all of our lines. I even have it on a t-shirt. <laughs> um, so it's just so important to us because people who will not read a nonfiction or an article or don't want to hear it when it comes to real life will pick up a book that's a story that is just to take them away, right? But when they're away, they come into contact with this idea maybe they wouldn't have considered otherwise. Um, they can identify with characters in ways they never would identify with someone standing beside them, right? Because they're in their head and they're seeing the world through their point of view. And when you do that, you learn to empathize and you learn to see things from a different perspective. And that is so important. Um, I think one of the one of the issues with our culture today, you know, this very insulated culture where we don't know our neighbors anymore is we don't hear their stories anymore. So I don't, I don't know what has made the person down the street who they are. Cause frankly, I don't even necessarily know who they are. So it's so easy to get trapped in our own little bubbles and our little echo chambers and only know, only know the perspective of the people closest to us because that's all we're hearing. Uh, so if we can, get into a story, get into a book, even movies, any any form of story, we can see the world through new eyes. And that can broaden our horizons, but more like the sample I read to you, it can broaden our hearts and help us to really, you know, look on the world like God does, like Christ does. He loves your enemies so much <laughs> that he died for them. So if we can kind of stretch out our, our hearts and stretch out our minds, through fiction, I think we have a much better uh, a much better chance of better understanding the people around us. Well, and you mentioned echo chambers, and I think that we've really had an intensification of that oh, yeah. with um, the polarizing media, with social media, mm -hmm. and even just our busyness or our perceived busyness with life that we think we don't have time for ideas that are not our own. And so, like you said, you can sneak in there with a story and say, oh, but this is your time. This is, you know, this, this is your choice. It's okay. And, and recognizing our neighbor's stories. I, in my mind, called it, which it's already an outdated term, but I started calling our culture the iPod culture that, you know, I plug in to only the things I want to hear. I drown everyone else out. I live in my own reality. We think that we're cultivating this very special internal environment, but really what we're creating is this very curated and flat life that actually lacks creativity, that we're, we have this abundance of options, but that all of the options are actually synthetic. Yeah. And that that's the funny thing about fiction is you would think with it not being true, that that would be the definition of synthetic, but it's actually the opposite, that it's opening up more options and it is organic because this existed in an author's mind. Yep. I don't know. That was probably a bunch of hooey, but it sounded good <laughs> in my think, head. I think you're right on. Um, and I think, you know, in, in this culture where, you know, we have these echo chambers, um, we also have cultivated this idea that ideas are dangerous. And, you know, I don't, that idea will offend me. So I don't want to interact with it. But, you know, I had a, a liberal arts education where we read the great books. I, I went to school with Rhonda, who you know, and we read all sorts of things. We, we read things we're not going to agree with, but that's important because you have to understand your own beliefs and you don't if you never encounter other beliefs. So it's so, it's so, so important <laughs> that we interact with people from all different backgrounds, all walks of life, people who you don't agree with about plenty, but you'll find even with them, you agree with them about a lot. And if mm -hmm. you can get past 
those talking points, the differences, you'll find that at the heart, they're a person just like you. And generally, you want the same things, you just don't agree on how to get there. But, you know, we all want love, we all want acceptance. And I think that's kind of the core of humanity. And um, we just need to figure out how to talk to each other sometimes. This is going to be blunt, but do you think maybe one of the reasons that we avoid ideas that are different from ours is that we don't want to discern that maybe we're intellectually lazy or afraid? Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. I think fear is is always a big one. I think part of it is also fear of realizing we're wrong about something. We don't want our notions, our preconceived notions to be challenged because as we were talking about growth hurts, right? Like it is uncomfortable and we don't like that. So, you know, it feels safe to stay where we are, but it's, that's, that's a lie. That we want to have a static character arc. Right. (laughs) But, but do we really, because I mean, I've been, I've been learning more and more about character arcs and just kind of evaluating things I watch or read based on that and just seeing, like you said, growth hurts, but we are supposed to grow. And you think about the stories that hit you the most and it's where there's change. And that, you know, as Christians, we're supposed to be encountering this never ending conversion to Christ Mm -hmm. more deeply and more deeply converting to Christ. And do we seriously think we can do that without being challenged? Exactly. Or do we honestly think that it's this, you know, cookie cutter Instagram version of, look, here's my little cross. Here's my Bible. Look, I've done it. I've arrived. I'm good. And it's like, no, 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 we haven't arrived. And even like the apostles, even after the coming of the Holy Spirit, that they had to continue to change and go out and stretch further. Mm -hmm. And they stretched all the way to martyrdom. Yeah. Yeah. I found it very interesting. I noted in in my reading a month or two ago that it was not until the very end that they stopped asking who would be the greatest in heaven. Like they were so concerned with this, you know, their ideas about greatness. And then, you know, even when, when Christ had died and risen from the dead, they were still asking this. And he just, you know, stopped them and said, look, here's your job. Go do it. And we never hear that question from them again. <laughs> like they finally got it when the Holy Spirit descended that, oh, oh, okay. Greatness means doing the work. <laughs> and isn't that the case with creative works? Yeah. That that's so hard because the world tells you, you need to be a bestseller. You need to get in with a big five publisher, that this is what success means. Yeah. And there's so much pressure to do that. Like, I love the quote from Mother Teresa, where she says, God doesn't ask you to be successful. He asks you to be faithful. And that's so hard with these creative works. And I'm sure with any job, but that pressure to perform to this worldly standard and make yourself great. Yeah. I'm going to be the best romance author. I'm going to have the most downloaded podcast. But why? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a funny balance, right? Because we, we have to give it our all in order to give it the respect it deserves, give it, you know, to give God the glory means doing it to the best of your ability. So you you should work at it, right? Like we shouldn't be content with being lazy and putting up stuff that isn't good. Uh, but we have to always know why. Like why, why are we doing it? Why are we writing? Why are we podcasting? Why are we doing all these things? And sometimes it is for that earthly glory, for the money, for whatever, um, but that's that's where it's empty, right? Like it's it's only right when we're doing that so that more people can hear, so that more people can see, so that more people encounter him. As with everything, it's always this funny balance of, you know, don't give him your half effort, but make sure all that effort is for him. Well, and of course, I point to creative arts and I'm like, oh, that's totally different from a, you know, punch a clock job. But it's not. Right. It's not that you absolutely can glorify God by being a janitor. Absolutely. If that is where he calls you to be, then he has a purpose for that. And that that job absolutely glorifies God. Or even if it's not a <clears throat> a job for income, like being a homemaker, mm-hmm. that you making that 597th peanut butter jelly sandwich <laughs> 
with love is glorifying God. That all these things, you know, changing that next diaper, pulling some more weeds in the garden, that all yep. these things glorify God. You know, I, I have to tell you, this the thing of pulling weeds in the garden, this is something that I have to do. The thing that it occurs, you know, tying back to this idea of constant conversion, you're always going to have to pull weeds. And I just see this as such a tie to the spiritual life that they might not be the same weeds. They might not be the same species of weeds. You've got to get out there and pull the weeds and you have to not let the seeds germinate. Yeah. You have to not let them in in the first place, but they're going to get in because we live, we are fallen and we live in a fallen world. But I think people get so, it just makes me think of this because my brain's always going a million different places, (laughs) but people get so discouraged in the spiritual life because they haven't arrived. They don't have a weed-free garden for more than three days. And so then they think they've failed. And it's like, no, we just keep trucking. <laughs> yep. That's just part of part of tending the garden, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I noticed that you had some characters who struggled with some weeds in <laughs> no. your book. Oh, no. Say it's not so. In Shadowed Loyalty, which is your novel that I read that you've published with your imprint, Chrism Press. Why don't you tell me why you chose the setting you chose? Gosh, okay. So I originally wrote this book when my son, who is now 14, was an infant, like in a bouncy seat. I was bouncing him at 4 a.m. as I'm writing this book. Um, This was the Rowan Will Not Sleep book. Um, So, you know, it started simply because... I was watching TV and, you know, you know how all these different bits and pieces kind of combine. And I just thought, you know, we're used to the law enforcement guy being the good guy. I think I was watching NCIS or something at the time. And I was like, but what about the people from whose perspective they aren't and the, when they're corrupt and, and all this stuff? So I just got this idea for, you know, a mafia story. Um, and if I was writing it, and it had to be 1920s because, hello golden era of the mafia, if there is such a thing, right? Um, And so then I was like, well, what would be the the best setting for that? Well, it would be Chicago, which I knew zero about at this point in time. Um, So yeah, I just decided it would be really fun (laughs) to explore what it must have been like in some of these mafia families where they still remembered the roots of the mafia, where it started because people needed protection from corrupt government. And then it just kind of snowballed into, well, who can you ever trust other than ourselves? And even the families start fighting. But there was still at the core this idea that family is the most important thing. That's why we're doing it. And then realizing that a lot of these families would have had strong faith roots. You know, they were they were from Italy and Italy was not in a good place then. And all they had was their faith. And they brought that with them to America. So we have, you know, the the kind of female side of the family that had been protecting the faith, and just striving to keep their families together. And you have the, the male side of the family that's striving to keep their family safe and provide for them, no matter what, even when that means doing things that aren't good. And, you know, how did that meet in an individual? And that's kind of what I decided to explore in these pages. Well, and I think you did a fantastic job in that you made a mafioso sympathetic, but not excusable. Yeah. And I thought that that was really great. And you don't pussyfoot around what the mob was involved in. No. Oh, it was ugly. One of the things that really struck me in the book that I was chewing on is you have more than one character who, at first I wanted to say... Uh, works in the sex trade. And then I really thought about our use of that language. And I thought, is that language even accurate? That yes, they are producing income, but by using that euphemistic language, we're implying that this is a legitimate way for people to be treated. And it's like, no, these people are being trafficked. Yeah, I thought that it was really bold in a fantastic way. These characters are well-rounded, that they have their own agency. And I'd just, I'd like to hear what your motivations for having them in the book are. One of the things as I was doing my research for this book that really struck me was that people got trapped and they would accept help from someone not knowing the strings attached and then would find themselves with all these so-called debts 
Um, so the the mafia was very famous for, you know, they would recruit someone into prostitution and they would charge them for every drop of water they drank and every bite of food they ate and rack up these fees. So while they think they're, you know, they're, well, they'll just do this for now and they'll earn enough and they'll get free. They're never going to get free because they're, they're debts, right? There's all these debts for the room that they're provided and all this stuff. We have these ideas about, you know, people who might choose this, but most of the time people don't choose this. They get, they get sucked in one way or the other. Um, sometimes, you know, we hear about people being kidnapped and forced into it. More often than not, people make a bad choice. They run away and they, you know, end up in a place they didn't mean to be. Something bad happens to them and they see no way out. It may not be being kidnapped, but it's still being trapped. And I think there have always in history been these stories and they're, they're still going on today. I don't imagine it's going to stop anytime in the near future because it's, it's an ugly part of humanity, but it is such a part of humanity. And I just kind of wanted to shine a light on that, that, you know, we have today these kind of glamorous ideas about the mob and, you know, the, the ritzy side and the speakeasies of the twenties. And we don't tend to see the lives that were just utterly destroyed. So I just kind of wanted to say, okay, let's take one of these nameless, faceless people that were part of the machine and put a name and a face to her. Figure out what their stories are and how they ended up here and whether there's ever any getting out. Um, so yeah, it was it was one of those that my first version way back in the day barely touched on, but I had kind of planned out a sequel that I don't know that I'm ever going to write, but it had allowed me to think through the story of this character a little more. So then when I rewrote it, I could kind of bring that background into it and um, kind of just put put some more light on the character of Sally, who is the one of one of the characters names here and Ava. Um, so these characters who are not in a situation we would ever want to be in, but they have to figure out how to live there and what that means and who they are and who that makes them and whether that really defines them. So. Well, and full disclosure, the reason it struck me so strongly is I have in my lifetime had multiple friends who have either, quote unquote, worked in prostitution or exotic dancing and things like that. It made me think of one particular friend that I had who was actively working in that field while we were friends. Um, and I was a teenager <laughs> when I befriended this girl and the loneliness that people that are trapped in the quote unquote sex industry feel. Mm -hmm. And her and I met at the pool in the apartment complex where we both lived. And she was just desperate for a friend. Even this teenage kid, you know, that had no business knowing what she did for a living. <laughs> and I remember her telling me, I'm only going to do this till I'm 22. I'm saving up my money. I'm going to get out. And she had been a runaway, like you're yeah. saying. Yeah, I think that's how it often happens. And trapped with violence, trapped with money. And then the thing is, is how do people realistically get out? And if people would like to pray for my friend, we'll just call her Layla. That's not her name, but... If people could pray for Layla wherever she is, because we're talking almost 30 years ago, and I pray she was able to get out. And I think that that's the reason why I found seeing people in the this nefarious situation in Christian fiction was so important. Because if we don't create an out, an understanding, and a future for people who are trapped, who will? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think far too often we are at least perceived as the ones waiting to judge. And far too often, I think Christians are the ones who judge, but that's just part of the trap, right? Like those are part of the walls holding them in. I don't, I don't know how many stories I've heard of people who made bad decisions because they were afraid of judgment from people of faith. And instead, what did Jesus actually do, right? Those were the people he loved the most extravagantly and that he went out of his way to help. And we need to, we need to do the same. We need to not only go out of our way, but make it our way 
to be that hand of love to the people in situations that they often have very little control over. Um, and even if they do, even if they, even if they chose it, we've all chosen bad things. You know, we've all made no. bad choices, right? It's Did you sucks. just say that some Christians are <laughs> sinners? Oh, no. I, oh, yeah, no. Yeah, never, never. Yeah. But God loves us so much. And, you know, when we're recording this, it's just after Easter weekend. So that's just very present in my mind, right? That he didn't just love these prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners and, you know, whatever, whatever label you want to put on them. He didn't just love them enough to come and give them a helping hand. He died for them. That's what we're called to do. We are called to do anything to save, to help, to love these people who are honestly no worse than us. God loves them every bit as much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and even the the other theme that really struck me in your book was the power of prayer and that Mm -hmm. when we feel hopeless about the condition of another person or even the condition of ourselves, but especially intercessory prayer, praying praying for others, that really struck me because I think in my own life, unfortunately, I'll look at a huge situation that I can't tackle and really can I tackle any situation without Christ? Absolutely not. But you know, you think you can. Oh, I've totally got this. I mean, that peanut butter jelly, the grace of God lets you make that peanut butter jelly. <laughs> and some days more than others. You know, like me personally, I look at the situation in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. What can I do? I can pray. Yep. But why why do you think it is, and maybe this is just my personal experience, but why do you think it is that we say it's all I can do? It's the only thing. And we almost give it a derogatory sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think because we are people like action, right? Like you like to be able to feel like you're actually doing something physical to to help a situation. And we put the most value on that. I think it honestly comes from not understanding the spiritual realm and not understanding that the battles we see are not always the whole battle and often aren't even the real battle going on. But we, yeah, so we tend to just kind of put down what we don't understand. And I don't think a lot of people even understand what prayer really is. And this is something my husband and I have been talking about. And he actually just uh, wrote a little article about it and sent it to me before he publishes it. The idea of what is prayer and why should we value it? And the what where he gets to is that it is basically seeking to unite yourself with God through love. And when you're doing that, you then understand better how to pray and what it is that you're doing and, you know, seeking to, to learn from him and to know what he wants so that you can pray for it. Cause how often do we even pray for the right thing, right? Like we're praying for what we want, not what we need in the eyes of God. But so often I think that he can use intercessory prayer, especially to create bonds and to create love where there was nothing. I I don't know about you, but I've had several occasions in my life where someone comes to mind in a very strange and peculiar way. And I pray for them sometimes when I haven't seen them in years. And then days later, learn something big was going on right then. It was like, that is so humbling that God loves each of us so much that when we really, really need that assistance, we need that that help, he reaches out to the the whole church, right? The church body. And the spirit will impress on other people for us that we need backup right now. So I'm just always blown away when that sort of thing happens and knowing that if they're doing it, if God's doing that for them, he does that for me. When I'm when I'm in that situation, he's going to ask someone maybe who barely even knows me to pray for me. And uh, there's real power in that. And I think we need to attune our spirits to it and realize that we are connected through God. And God loves us each so much that if we just listen, that we can become part of this real body that that acts together. Well, and that's the thing is he loves the person that's in need so much to ask for the intercessory prayer, but then he he loves us and actually invests so much in us that he would send us the invitation to participate right. in this salvific act. Which is amazing, right? Like, who am I <laughs> to participate in that? 
And, it, you know, the snarky part of you wants to go, God, do you really know what you're doing? You, you think I can help? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I really do. And you're, oh, oh, okay. Alrighty then. <laughs> right? What do you say to that? What do you say to that? Because he knows us, like, he knows us better than we know ourselves, but we want to write it off and say, oh, no. And, and we'll do it in both directions. We'll say, oh, I know I can totally do this. I'm in control of X in this situation. Control, that's the worst word in the world, but <laughs> I'm a fan. I'm a fan. And and that we say, God, I've got this. I've got this. Famous last words. <laughs> or we also do the flip side and we'll say, you know, I know you've asked me to do this task, but I can't do that. Yeah. What good and, would it do? Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, looping back to the thing of creative arts that I think that can be a struggle. You know, you ask, what does what I'm doing, how does it matter what I'm doing? Like, like I said, I'm kind of stuck mentally on the Ukraine thing right now. Creative arts matter so much that when there's been totalitarian crackdowns on societies, who's one of the first groups they go after? Creatives. Yeah. yeah. Writers and poets. Yeah. I mean, that tells you how important these stories and this work and this creative work is. Absolutely. Books wouldn't be banned if they didn't matter. Ooh, neither would they be burned. Right. And, and isn't that fascinating? And yet we take it so for granted. We take the fact that we have libraries for granted mm-hmm. and all of this access. And, and people think, oh, I can just get whatever from the internet. You know, give me my 120 character spiel. And now I know everything there is to know about virology, vaccines, <laughs> Slavic history, whatever. I'm good. I'm good. Like- yeah. I think there's something to the immersion, the immersion of a book, the immersion of a story. And like you said, especially the immersion into the humanity of a story. Yeah. What do you want your readers to take away from your work? I get asked this question a lot. And a lot of times, you know, I have different takeaways for each book, but an overarching theme through all of my books is just something something about redemption. And I've lived a very boring life. Like I don't have any huge stories about how God saved me from these, you know, horrible, horrible things, but I'm still so keenly aware every day of how God saved me from those horrible, horrible things that I did not live through. And I'm so keenly aware of, I am only who I am because of him. And I live the life I live because of him. I remember there was there was a time in college where I was trying to write mainstream books and I I did. I wrote a couple and I'm like I can't do anything with them because they don't they don't show the truth and the truth is Christ and I need to write that. Like that's what needs to be in my words. So I just always hope that when people put down my book they've just thought a little harder about what redemption really means and they've spent some time contemplating how they are letting God into their life and that they see someone through a different lens. I don't know who who it is, right? Maybe it's their neighbor. Maybe it's their child. Maybe it's their spouse. Maybe it's a stranger on the street or just someone that they aren't even aware of. But Maybe it's themselves. Maybe it's themselves. Absolutely. But I talk a lot about the lens that a character wears and how I try to write through that lens so that you're seeing the world the way they see it. And I think that's one of the things I always hope a reader takes away, even if they don't realize it, that they've spent time looking through someone else's glasses, seeing the world the way they do. And you can't help but be changed by that when you when you really do it. So I just I just always hope that perspectives change just a little because mine sure change as I'm writing it and as I'm, you know, laboring over these books. And forced to examine things that maybe I didn't want to look too closely at. So that's kind of what I what I'm always hoping is that that people just look a little look a little deeper, look a little more deeply, and that that uh, they allow their perspectives to change and allow themselves to just wonder and be open to how God moves in ways that they may not have known. Well, and I have to say, I'm so grateful that Whitefire started Chrism Press because, and that Whitefire exists for that matter, because I think that a lot of the struggles 
between Catholic and Protestant Christians is because we don't know each other's stories. 100%. Yes. And we think we know what the other side believes, and we're totally wrong (laughs) all the time. So misperceptions and preconceived notions and prejudices have just destroyed what should be a unity. And so this idea of working together and being one church body is something that's been very important to my husband and I for years. Um, So yeah, that's that's one of the big reasons we wanted to start Chrism and still work with White Fire and just bring it all together is there's a quote in a devotional book we did as a family that says, God said he's, Jesus said he's coming back for his bride, not his harem, right? Like we need to be one church, one bride, one body. I know it was so funny. I just like, they done said it. Yep. Stick a pin in that one, huh? (laughs) Oh yeah. That's, that's something that sticks with you once you've heard it, read it. Yep. Yeah. Really, it it couldn't be a harem because, I mean, he gives a full gift of himself to his bride. He doesn't dilute it. He doesn't share it. He doesn't waste it somewhere else. Yeah. There aren't favorites. No. Well, and that's the thing, like you read about, you know, you read about the patriarchs and things like that, you know, having multiple wives and things like that. And especially in our American culture, this is so foreign. I've watched some documentaries where they talk about communities in Africa where polygamy is still very much a part of everyday life. And there are favorite wives. And, you know, King David had favorite wives and things like that. And imagine how you would feel if you weren't the favorite wife. Mm Mm-hmm. And then you flip all that on the head and you realize there's only one wife. There is only one bride and she is the favorite, but we don't act like it. (laughs) We don't act like we're the favorite. We act like we have to fight with each other for his love. Yeah. Sometimes I think we need a good bonk in the head. (laughs) I would have to agree with you on that one. I think so often we we hurt ourselves and, and each other as the body. With all, with all that, with all those ideas of, well, we have to, you know, do this. We have to prove ourselves right. And we just are doing damage to the whole body. Mm-hmm. Because we're cutting pieces off. Mm-hmm. Or saying that part doesn't do, you know. The- right. That part doesn't, that part's wrong. That part doesn't matter. That part doesn't look like me. Ooh, there you go. It gets back to the, the literature that you read us at the beginning. Yeah. And and here's the thing is, I mean, is there theological truth? Yes, there is. There is. Absolutely. But 99% of our beliefs we hold in common, mm-hmm. but we choose to fight each other over the 1%. And it's not saying the 1% doesn't matter, but we're ignoring the 99% so that we have something to fight over to, once again, just like the apostles, prove who's the best. Yes, absolutely. And- and one thing I have discovered is that it is 99%, but we, we, we tell ourselves stories about, well, we, we can't be like them, so they must have this wrong too. And we really lie about what other people believe to ourselves. Like we're, we're telling ourselves stories to make them more different, and they're not. And I can't tell you how many times over the years we've had conversations with different friends and said, well, what about this? And they're like, what are you talking about? I don't believe that. Right. And so many fabricated differences that are getting in the way of doing the work of God. And it's just, it's sad is what it is. Well, and that's why I wanted to like try to bring together modern day inklings with my show is basically yeah. what I wanted to do. Because who doesn't love Lewis? Who doesn't love Tolkien? And right. who doesn't regard their friendship as one of the things that really powered 20th century excellent fiction is is their friendship. And lo and behold, both Christians, one Catholic, one Anglican, and one had been an atheist. And so like if they, they never would have written the work that they did and the quality that they did if it weren't for their friendships and that that friendship probably made both of them better Christians. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And that's something that I have just been struck by over and over again, too, is this idea that people find each other and, you know, build each other up and edify each other. And because of that, they create things that change the world. If you talk to one person who you consider a world changer, they know the other ones, right? Because that's how it happens is we get together and we work together and we change each other and then help each other change the world. And yeah, so I, I love that idea of, you know, being being the inklings, pulling people in, getting people talking. It's that connection, the community is so important. I'm all about that. I'm all about that. Well, and something that strikes me when you talk about connection and relationship, and we talk about the body of Christ, if we don't know each other's stories, if we aren't in relationship, then how can we help the parts that are wounded? The eye needs to be able to look at the wound in the foot and talk to the finger to pull the sliver out. So true. That if the eye says, I don't want to help the foot, and I'm not talking to the finger, that we sit there pretty wounded. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. Well, and I know you're writing books to help us heal a little bit of that woundedness. What are you working on right now? I oh, have so many projects going right now. So um, I have just turned in edits on book three in my Secrets of the Isle series, which will release in September. So that was my last pass on that, and it is officially done. Um, I just turned in today, because that was last week that I turned that in. Oh this my. week, I turned in uh, rewrites on a book called Yesterday's Tides which has been with me so long. So I first wrote that book the summer after I graduated college. So you can just guess at how long ago that was. And it was a contemporary. And um, I just, I loved that story. It, it obsessed me. Like I, I woke up in the middle of the night with it in my head. I got up when my husband left for work and I wrote for three solid days. I did sleep in there here and there and wrote half a book. And, um, so every time I've worked on it through the years, it's kind of just taken over my heart again. And I've worked on it a lot. I've rewritten it several times. And um, when I started writing all these books that were historicals and set in World War One, and um, my best friend Stephanie said, oh, you need to rewrite Yesterday's Tides as a historical. And I was like, oh. I totally need to rewrite this as a historical. So I had been toying with a, a way to make it a World War I story because that was mostly what I was writing and none of it quite worked. And so then a couple years ago, because it's, um, it's set at the beach where we vacation every year, the Outer Banks of North Carolina. So every year when we go back there, the story kind of takes, you know, takes my mind over again. Um, and one year, I guess it was just two years ago, I was sitting on the beach and I was thinking, man, all the interesting things in the islands happened in World War II, not in World War I. And I went, oh, time slip, because I already had an idea for, you know, the next generation anyway. So I just like, I'm going to put them together. So it became this story that not only shows how the past echoes into the future and how the choices we make impact not only us, but the generations to come and shape the world we live in and in, in all those, you know, overarching themes, but it also became a way for me to pull in all my different story worlds. So I have characters from all my books in there pretty much. And it was just so much fun to do this. Um, so, so that's the story I was most recently working on. Um, that one will come out next about, about a year. So next probably January or February of 2023. And then it's time to start working on the next book, um, which will be called the series is The Imposters. I'm not sure what the title of the first book will be called, but um, it's another Edwardian. And um, it kind of is going to pull in a lot of fun things. We're going to have some circus aspects and espionage and the founding of MI5. And I, I always have something, you know, spies, war, mayhem, mafia. You know, we have to have something really interesting and suspenseful in there. Not that this comes naturally to me. I'm a romance writer at heart, but I like the interesting things in there. But, you know, it's going to be another story about how we think we know who we are and then God shows us who he knows we are. Um, so another theme that always comes up is who our identity is in Christ. I have to ask you, when you brought up circuses immediately, what came to mind is, have you ever seen the short film called The Butterfly Circus? I have not. You need to watch Butterfly Circus. Listeners, you need to watch Butterfly Circus. I think it, it'll take less than 15 minutes of your life. And it was produced at this point quite a while ago, but it has Eduardo Berastigue 
in it. And it is so profound. And I think it really ties into all the themes that we've been talking about today. So people I'm need to watch it. Up. Yes. <laughs> and and now that, that that's my non sequitur for this section of the show. And um, <laughs> then I think it's actually time for the rando round. Ooh. And I have my 100 over caffeinated questions here <laughs> in handwriting that I cannot read most of the time. You get to pick your percentile dice because I'm a bonafide nerd. So you can pick pink with mermaid sparkles or tie-dye. Uh, let's go pink. All right. Let's see where this takes us. Oh, Before we do this, I have to ask, how much do you write a day? To be as prolific as you are, you've got like a zillion books out. How much do you write a day? Um, my, my usual goal was always 2,000 words a day. Lately, rather than doing that, what I've been doing is a little bit a day, and then I take a week and do nothing but writing and write 50,000 words in a week. So, yeah. Wow. I don't know how this came to be the way that works for me because it didn't used to be, but in the last three years, that's how I've written every book is take a week, write one half, take a week a month later and write the other half. Well, well thank thanks for sharing your secret. That's fabulous. One day I'll finish a book. One day. Well, <laughs> I have one finished. It needs a rewrite. I have another one with 30,000 words that I think I'm going to go back and work on that one. One day. One day. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. We've got 36. How would your family and friends describe you? Um, let's see. They would describe me as a word nerd. I, I obsess over words quite a lot. I am very quiet. I am a homebody. And I don't know. I don't know what else they might say. Those are probably the things my kids would say. She's always in a world of her own. And it takes a million times to say mom, 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 mom to actually get her attention. Well, and that's okay. Because then when you are able to pry your attention away from your writing, I'm sure you're giving that same devotion and attention to them. Yes. And I mean, we homeschool. So my kids... We're always here together. <laughs> so they may have to say my name a few times, but they know that I'm always right there. I know, right? Isn't that, yeah, we homeschool as well. And it's it's a gift to be able to spend that time together. It, yeah. it really is. And just presence. Yeah, yeah. And you get to discover things together. It's awesome. Oh, I know. Isn't that the best? I mean, I'm only, what, this is year four of homeschooling for our family. And I have learned so much with oh, my yeah. kids, from my kids. Mm-hmm. It is just definitely profound. Yeah. Oh, it is. And it just, it gives your family this shared culture. Yeah. Yeah. Common language. Absolutely. Yeah. We're, we're reading Anne of Green Gables right now. Yeah. I just love stories and share, and sharing them. I mean, how much better is a story when you share it with somebody? Oh, so much better. It's like the, the big part. Like that's what makes it great, right? Like a book is good when you read it, but it's when you share it with someone that it really comes alive. Oh, absolutely. Like I'm in a book club right now. We're reading um, John Paul II's Love and Responsibility. Mm. And it's this like... So light reading. Oh, heavens. <laughs> It is a tough read. I mean, I am not an inexperienced reader, but I have had to pull out the dictionary more than once on this one. <laughs> but I'm in a book club for it and that we're all sharing these ideas and like the philosophy is just growing through relationship. It yeah. is the coolest thing. Absolutely. Yeah. We've got 95. What superhero would you be? Oh, are we talking real superheroes or made up ones? Either one. The right. the doors are wide open. The doors are wide open. Gosh. Um, you know, I think I have answered this question once before and I don't remember the brilliant answer I came up with. I would probably have to just totally steal from the old PBS show that my kids loved, which was Word Girl. And, you know, she was able to come up with words. <laughs> that's that's what my whole life revolves around is words. So totally going to go with word girl i love world girl i love She's awesome. girl. i know we we love pbs kids too in our house it's like that's actually what my kids are doing while i write is watching pbs kids hey educational television is totally fine <laughs> oh and my goodness they love wild kratz too oh yes i love wild kratz yeah but here's the thing my kids will spew out like did you know da 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 i'm right? like um 
No, no I didn't. I didn't. I didn't watch that episode. Right, right. Yeah. Wild Kratts and Octonauts taught my son like so much biology that he's just like he knows it all or thinks he does. <laughs> yeah, they, they love Wild Kratts. And then um, one of my girlfriends got my kids a subscription to National Geographic Kids. Mm-hmm. And they just love pouring over that. Like they're their natural state is to learn and absorb and synthesize all this information. And it's just mind blowing to watch it happen. Like, yeah, that's the amazing thing about kids right there. Just sponges taking it all in. Yeah. Yeah. And that it's not just spewing out rote facts. Like they start making connections with things too. And it's wondering and it ignites their curiosity. The more they learn, the more they want to learn. Yeah. And then it makes you more curious and makes you experience wonder. Because I don't think we're ever meant to stop that. I mean, you look at the God that we have. He is a God of wonders. And if we cease to wonder, how are we ever going to engage him? Yeah, yeah. Or or begin to understand him because he's so much bigger, right? Like so much bigger than all these things in his creation. I think it just helps me appreciate him more and more the more I learn about what came from him. So it's, yeah. So I guess we'll entitle this episode Wild Kratts and Theology. Um, <laughs> how about we go with number 50? What was a major turning point in your life? Let's see. Um, I'm going to pick, a, I'm sure there have been many, but I will pick a, a recent one. About 18 months ago, my son was diagnosed with type 1, di- or type 1 diabetes, and that was a just a traumatic experience because he was life flighted to a children's hospital and it was a crazy five days and he was he was not unresponsive but remembers nothing from that day so there was just all the trauma of that but as we were driving home from our emergency room to pack bags to take two and a half hours away to the children's hospital while he was on a helicopter my husband, you know, was holding my hand as we're driving home. And he just said, this does not get to be what derails us from our calling. This is what's God, what God is going to use to make us into the people we need to be to do his work. And that was just something I clung to as we went through the hospital and through months of just, this becomes all consuming as you're learning how to live a new way. And Things got put on hold and projects got neglected. And I just kept having to remember that, that, that this isn't what, what makes me not me. This is what turns me into the me God needs me to be. This is what's going to make Rowan into the man God needs him to be. And that's what God always does with our challenges and with these hardships we don't want, but he gives them to us because that's what it takes to shape us into the vessel he needs us to be. That we're formed by our crosses, not by our comforts. Yeah. My last question I ask all of my guests is, what gives you hope right now? Right now, I'm going to pick something that may sound silly, but I look out my window and I see flowers blooming and I see new leaves. And I have always loved spring because of all it represents and because after a long winter, I'm so ready for it uh, on a very natural plain. But after I read, I think it was actually the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. Um, and he, that, you know, from the point of view of a demon saying, you know, this horrible thing about human humanity is that all it takes is a walk th- through the woods or a change of season to remind them of God. We have to work against this. But it's so true that all it takes is seeing that new life to remind me of what new life really is. And seeing that color to remind me of the God who created it. And so I just always, I love spring because it always speaks hope to me saying, you know, no matter how cold, no matter how long (laughs) the winter was, and, you know, no matter how dry we feel sometimes, especially as creatives, we, we feel sometimes like we pour it all out and there's nothing left or there's all these distractions, but life is just waiting to bloom. And that's just, I think, a lesson we always need to remember is that life is always waiting to bloom. That is just lovely. I thank you so much for coming on the show and tying it up with just a beautiful little springy bow. (laughs) So my pleasure. I'm so glad that uh, you invited me. It was a joy.
It really was. Thank you, Rosanna. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, click on the follow button for more tales every other Tuesday. And in the meantime, read stories that matter because you are living one.